Hello and welcome to Dialogue and Debate. My name is Jan Bock and I'm the Programme Director of Cumberland Lodge in Windsor Great Park. A welcome to those of you who are joining us for the first time and also to our regular viewers. Last week we discussed how politics has become more or less polarised as a result of the pandemic. If you missed the webinar, you can watch it on the Read, Watch, Listen page on our website cumberlandlodge.ac.uk. Today we are pleased to welcome three new guests to talk about the future of the UK charity sector. We will be discussing how charities need to adapt and innovate in the face of current challenges, but also how charities can possibly harness some of the opportunities resulting from the pandemic. Uh, say good morning and welcome to Rita Chada, the CEO of the Small Charities Coalition, Alex Scales, the director of the Cass Centre for Charity Effectiveness, and Rachel Whale, the founder and CEO of uh, Corio. Welcome to you all and good morning. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Uh, to everybody watching, do please get involved and submit any questions you'd like to put to our guests. You can submit questions via the Q&A function if you're watching live on Zoom or by tweeting at Cumberland Lodge or commenting on our Facebook live stream. Alex, if I can start with you, would you mind starting off by introducing yourself and then maybe talk a bit about your hopes and fears for the next five years for the charity sector? Yes, of course. Good morning and, and lovely to be here this morning. Thank you for inviting me to um, contribute. Um, a little bit about myself. Um, I have been working um, predominantly with the charity sector and social purpose organisations for the last decade and I lead um, all our consulting and professional development activities at the Centre for Charity Effectiveness at Cass Business School in London. Hold. I always say it's, um, it was with tremendous foresight that my predecessors set the centre up uh, with a specific focus on charities, but sitting with, within what is a typical global um, you know, leading business school, because we, we tend to be able to draw on that best evidence, best practice in terms of business and management, and then really bl blend that with um, a, a robust theoretical underpinning, but most importantly, the contemporary practice, so very, very applied learning through our uh, master's degrees for charities and our professional development courses. So I work with leaders, current leaders and leaders of tomorrow, um, you know, on a day to day basis, week in, week out. And it's been it's been really interesting during this period, um, seeing seeing how um, leaders and their organizations are navigating through um, this pandemic. Gosh, to start, hopes and hopes and fears. I suppose I'll, I'll start with the fears and then end on on the positives, of which I do think there are. You know, there are going to be plenty, and will have to be. I suppose my main fears are that at a time like this, you know, many charities may just pare down so hard that they find it really difficult to reimagine and reinvent um, in the future. And I think. You know, that doesn't necessarily need to uh, differentiate between the size of an organisation, but I think it, it could be potentially, um, you know, really difficult for some of the smaller charities that are so focused on responding to that um, high degree of need that we're seeing coming through, that perhaps there isn't capacity and time to focus on the longer term sustainability um, of the organisation and the provision of the, of the services. Um, I think there's, um, you know, there's a there's a risk that boards become increasingly risk averse, understandably, um, in terms of their fiduciary duties, and perhaps that may create a, a tension between the leadership and and uh, the the management and the boards in terms of 
taking those really difficult decisions. And I do worry at times that those conversations about the really difficult decisions, you know, maybe being held too late, um, such that the value of the current services that are available gets eroded um, over time. And perhaps if a decision was taken at an earlier stage to pass those services to, a, to another organization, perhaps through the, you know, rather non-palatable word merger, um, then, then at least those services will be preserved for, for the beneficiaries. Uh, moving on to a more positive note, um, you know, we're seeing change at an un unprecedented, on an unprecedented scale. And I'm hearing time and time again that, you know, organizations have responded so fast and well to this change at a speed that is obviously being driven by circumstances outside their control, but it's really proving to them that they can adapt. They do have this agility when they absolutely have to, to maneuver and maneuver fast. So I'm really hoping that some of that belief and ability um, gets carried, carried through. And I think um, through any, any crisis, there's gonna be immense amounts of learning. Um, and I think the real trick will be to be able to, to share that ahead of going live. We were talking about, you know, how important it is to have these conversations and to share experiences, not only the, the good ones, but also the learning from things that haven't gone so well. And I think that will really, really help um, leaders and their organizations to, to position themselves better for the future. Um, whatever the challenge is, you know, hopefully much smaller than the ones that they're currently grappling with. But I think that learning, that sharing, that coming together um, at both the community level and, and at a more national level, I think will bear the sector in really good stead going forward. And, and just to follow up on that, um, you, you speak to lots of charities and you talked about the hopes and fears. Have you identified any trends, which charities are more able to focus on the hopes and the positives and which are more concerned? Is it size? Is it location? Is it, is it just funding? W what makes charities to focus more on one or the other in the current situation? Um, you know, well, my mantra is always that the, the, the sector, as we know, it's so diverse and so not homogenous. Um, and I think it very much, very much um, depends on the starting point of the organization. And I don't think that um, necessarily differentiates between size or focus or subsector in terms of what you're, what you're working, uh, who you're working with. I think inevitably the sort of social care, the, the social needs that we're hearing time and time again, be it, be it the health, the aging, um, you know, the, um, the homelessness that are coming through time and time again. I mean, that, that demand is, is just phenomenal, set against decreased levels of, levels of, of income. Um, but equally, there's some organisations who have decided to, to pretty much shut down activities for now and to, to come, you know, to, to go live again post-pandemic. There's a debate about whether, um, you know, you should be meeting your current beneficiaries and your future beneficiaries. I mean, I think I think it's really difficult to say, but inevitably those who are facing, you know, the real frontline demands that we're hearing about on a day-to-day -day basis are those who are absolutely have to have to do this balancing act between now and and how they're going to navigate through for the future. And Rachel, I wonder whether you could say a bit more about diversification as well. We just touched on it. Is, is diversification a driving factor in increasing efficiency and, and future proofing? Oh, wow. I, well, first of all, it's, not, it's great to be here. Hi, everyone. Um, 
I think diversity is absolutely essential. Um, I think the charity sector needs so much more diversity uh, in order to be uh, ultimately closer to, more understanding of the vulnerable people and communities it exists to serve. So I think that is a need right now. Um, and in terms of my hopes and fears for what's happening right now, I hope this is an opportunity for the sector to rise up to some of those challenges. Um, things are, um, there's a lot of pain and loss happening out there right now. And we, we've got an opportunity to um, imagine kind of a better future and a better world. Um, a lot of our work at Corio is working with young people coming into the sector. So through our Charity Works programme, uh, through our 2027 programme, and we know that the sector is um, too white, uh, too, too, too many male leaders, too many um, uh, white leaders. And particularly right now and in the, in, during the events of the last few weeks in the States and across the world, um, there's a real call to action for all of us to recognise the privileged positions we hold as white leaders in the space and to be questioning practices. And we're particularly keen through our Charity Works programme and others to be part of a solution rather than a problem. So we're, we're working really hard to encourage people from a, a, a black Asian minority ethnic background to come into the space and take positions of power and to lead. Um, so the, I, I think there's a big wake up call right across the sector around diversity and whether that's um, ethnic diversity, gender diversity, um, is, is a huge issue. And can you say a bit about more the, a bit more about the work you're doing and how the current pandemic is maybe accelerating some of these processes or is, is throwing up challenges that you hadn't that you hadn't foreseen and that make you redirect some of your charitable objectives or charitable work? Mm. Well I think um, the all of our organizations have been dispersed rapidly overnight. Um, we in some ways I think that's an opportunity because I think in some ways, um, the organisations we've designed are still rooted in 19th century practices in the world of work. Um, so many organisations have their mission, um, but rather than being truly mission led, are often um, shackled by the past and by silo working. Um, so in this dispersed world, it's fascinating to see how we make decisions, how we develop culture, how we look after and care for people working with us and the communities that we're here to serve. Um, and the um, uh, the the immediate opportunity through that, I think, is to look at how we can truly collaborate in this virtual environment. Um, many of the young people that have come in through our programs into the sector are now working in a virtual space or have been furloughed, and we're really interested in how we can support them to work on projects right across the sector and almost be liberated by that virtual space. Um, I'd be interested in, in Rita's view, but I think a lot of the smaller organisations that desperately need to access talent um, might find it easier to access virtual talent teams in this environment rather than feeling like they, they um, can't access that kind of opportunity. And going back to the trends and the point that Alex made just now about what we're seeing and the kind of organisations that are thriving and those that are struggling, I think ultimately the organisations that come through this time, it will be a test of true leadership, truly inclusive leadership, um, inc inclusive leadership that lives and breathes the values of the organisations and, and a real exposure of values and culture right now amongst the organisations that you see stepping up to adapt and change, questioning what their contribution should be in this space um, compared to organisations that are retreating. Um, 
there's some really interesting work happening right now through um, this concept of stewarding loss. Colleagues Casey Robinson and Iona Lawrence have initiated a piece to help organizations really experience and reflect on the loss that's happening when organizations might need to close. And what does closing well and ending well look like? And what can we learn from spaces like the hospice movement around stewarding that loss through the space? Um, I'll pause there. Really interesting perspectives. Before I ask Rita about the virtual teams, I just want to remind everybody watching at home that we'd love to hear your questions and put them to our panelists during the seminar. You can do so by using the Q&A function on the Zoom live stream or tweeting at Cumberland Lodge or commenting on our live stream on Facebook. If you prefer to re remain anonymous, please direct message us on Facebook or Twitter. Rita, good morning also to you. What is your experience with virtual teams? Maybe you can share some of your own personal experiences and some of the experiences that uh, smaller charities have had more, more broadly. Thank you. Um, and good morning, everybody. Um, so I think virtual teams, the theory and the concept of virtual teams is really good but the reality of it is somewhat different. So I've just come off a call with uh, 144 charities that were talking, uh, and we run a, a session called Funding Talks every week at the moment. 144 had booked, 100 had turned up. My guess is that the 44 that didn't turn up, at least half of those would have been because they couldn't access the digital uh, link in time. So I think there is an issue here about capacity and digital literacy, and that may start to become the new divide between charities, not necessarily those that are large or small or rural or urban, but actually the digital competence is going to be the defining feature of how you access resources, how you access money, and how you manage and deliver your services. Because I do think in the current climate, there, there is not going to be a return to the same type of service delivery that so many organizations are used to. We're gonna end up with a more blended model, but the blended model is gonna require more skills where that, and I think there's a big, huge deficit gap in some, amongst some sort, sorts of uh, smaller charities in particular. And how are they addressing this gap? Is there support from, from government or from other charities to, to close this gap? Is there an awareness of this situation? I mean, I think if you look at some of the work of Lloyds Bank, um, they focused extensively and they produced an annual survey looking at the digital uh, competency of charities as opposed to businesses as well. And year on year, the data is telling us the same thing, that there is, whilst digital literacy is improving, there's still huge challenges within the sector. And I think the challenge is, how do you deliver digital training and how do you get to those people if you can't communicate with them uh, digitally? So, you know, there's several examples where, um, and I'll just run through a very quick anecdote, which I always use, which kind of sums up the challenge for us. I had a gentleman who emailed, who rang the office and said he wanted to set up a charity. And I referred him to an on-site tool that we had. Um, and he said, yes, fine. And in conversation, I said to him, um, well, would you like to join us as a member? And he said, oh, no, that's going to be too com complicated. I said, no, look, stay on the line. We'll do this together. And we went through uh, um, on the, and I said, are you logged on? And he said, yes. And there was at that point a stage in our application form where you had to upload your governing document. And I said to him, 
um, can you upload uh, the document? He went, oh, well, how do I do that? And I said, don't worry, let's find it. You tell me where it is. And I was expecting him to say, it's on my desktop, it's in my computer. He said, it's in my filing cabinet. Mm -hmm. Now, it then took him two weeks to post in the, um, the governing document to us. Now, in those two weeks, he'd missed a major funding opportunity that would have supported his organization. So I think when we talk about digital competency, we've got to find another way of communicating that to those that are at the very, very basic level. Zoom meetings are a real challenge for our organization at the moment, because the level of competency and skills in navigating a simple function like Zoom that a lot of us take for granted is very varied. So how do you hold information sessions, create solidarity amongst small charities in a very diverse um, environment? And obviously funding is an important part of this. Um, Obviously, there is huge, huge variation as well in the experience of charities have had. But broadly speaking, how has the pandemic affected uh, the revenues and the income of, of charities and the charity sector? So various, when we, uh, just before furlough, we'd put out a survey um, to identify what the impact had been. And at that point, um, I think we identified that six out of uh, 10 charities said they couldn't survive the next three months. Now, there's various figures that have been banded around that are fairly similar. One of the important things to remember is that this is not coming through the Charity Commission at the moment. So the Charity Commission isn't noticing a dramatic uh, number of charities saying we're, we're closing, partly because it takes time to navigate through all the processes and wind down, but also because, especially amongst smaller charities, there's a mentality and a hope and a dream that actually one more funding application and they'll be there. It's only going to take that one more application and it will be fine. And also we are seeing a lot of people using their own money to actually fund their ventures uh, because they think that eventually funding will come through as well. From a government point of view, government has committed 750 million to the, uh, the charity sector. And it was notable that for the first time in my living memory, it, they've specifically mentioned small charities um, as part of that. The challenge around that is actually when you look at the lottery, the procedures and the processes that are being used are still disproportionately disenfranchising smaller charities. It's still the complicated forms. You still have to be able to talk the language um, of funders to be able to access some of those uh, pots. Is that, is that an experience that you've had as well, Rachel, speaking to, to other charities? Yeah, I think um, one of the tragedies of how this pandemic is affecting the charity sector is that the organisations that were heralded for being innovative and generating their own income through commercial outlets, through shops, through um, yeah, commercial enterprise, um, have really, really, I mean, it's, it was just an overnight shocking loss, sudden loss of that income. And at the, so the scale of it, the speed of it, um, was, uh, has just caused so much damage, I think, right across the sector. Um, I think organisations that have, are more reliant on um, either government support or foundations and trusts have, have maybe had a slightly different experience, but I think it's fair to say the pain is being experienced right across the sector. And for many of us, I think we are um, hoping and praying that 
organizations will still be standing um, because their services are needed more than ever. You know, it's, it's like this perfect storm, uh, sudden and dramatic loss of income, um, a, a, a sudden and dramatic rise in the need for the support coming from the charity sector right across the country, whether that's mental health, domestic violence, young people. This is when we need the sector more than ever. Um, and they are also, charities are coping with staff absence either because of their own health or caring responsibilities and, and particularly organisations working in, in the BAME sector. So it's, it is a kind of perfect storm, but my hope comes from the fact that um, at times like this, you know, kind of cracks appear and uh, that's where you can kind of see some radical hope. And, and I look to the charity sector as the space for radical hope where there are progressive people that want to change the way change happens, not just make the change themselves. So I have a deep sense of belief in the potential of the sector to come through this and help build that bridge to whatever is coming next. Um, and if you look at history in the past, you know, it's been the people in the margins and on the edges that have helped kind of reimagine <laughs> what comes next and, and then help build that and make it happen. So yeah, hopes and fears both. <laughs> Can you tell us a bit more about some of the cracks you've seen, some of the positive examples of best practice that maybe people watching can also look up on the internet or can learn about more, can maybe see as an example, as inspiration for their own work? Um, sure, I can talk about people that are inspiring me right now. <laughs> um, so I've, I've taken a lot of inspiration from a collective called the International Futures Forum, who have been doing work in this space. They describe themselves as a two-year project that's lasted 20 years. <laughs> so they were writing um, back in 2012 and slightly earlier, um, and they've done some beautiful work looking at 20, they call it 21st century competencies. You know, so what do people of tomorrow need in terms of how do they need to behave to build a better society? And I'd really recommend their, their work and their, and their ethos. Um, I, I have been really struck by the people exploring the world of um, social imagination. So Jeff Morgan at UCL and Demos in Helsinki has written a fabulous piece around our kind of crisis of imagination. Um, and I, I, I read that in terms of what are the implications and opportunities here for the charity sector as being the space where that imagination um, for building a better future should be where that should be kind of really generated. Um, so I take a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of interest in that kind of area. I mentioned the stewarding loss work, which I think is very, very needed and humane and important right now. Um, and I look to people like um, friends, Imi Kaur at Civic Square in Birmingham, um, who has, I think it's a wonderful example of grassroots, um, heartfelt um, community capacity building kind of love and compassion. Um, they ended one venture, gave birth to this, the next. Um, and I think more and more we will see inspiring examples at the very, very local levels, whether that's the mutual aid groups or initiatives like Civic Square and people who don't even necessarily identify themselves as leaders, formal or informal, just doing amazing heartfelt community work. Um, and, and we are finding at Corio, uh, uh, our, our work is increasingly going in the direction of community leadership. Um, and and I, I wonder if there's an opportunity for the traditional charity sector and informal community spaces 
and a kind of a blending of that as we move forwards. Um, yeah, that's, that's where I'm taking a lot of my inspiration from. And, and maybe I would just say, finally, um, I every day take inspiration from the thousands of young people out there who want to work in this space and apply through our programs. Um, and, and we can't compete on salary <laughs> in this space, um, but the younger generation genuinely want to use their day job for both personal development and social progression and reimagining. And so thousands of people every year, more people than we can place. Um, that, and I, so I take a lot of inspiration um, from them and their willingness to kind of work really hard um, and, and learn really fast. I think that's going to be such an important capacity or talent moving forwards are organizations and people within those organizations and charities who are able to learn um, and develop their organizations and their systems as learning organizations and systems. And we don't have enough of that. Um, our organizations take, can take a lot of effort to just run a lot of our kind of um, energy and talent sometimes gets sucked into just running the organization. Um, so the more we can uh, ensure that the work is genuinely mission driven, I think that's, um, that's, that's something that we can kind of look to safeguard as we, as, as we transition. That's great, thank you. Um, and I wonder whether Alex, we can we can follow up on this because Rachel did talk about salaries and, uh, and being mission driven. Uh, you, you have worked in the private sector. Do you think charities now need to become more entrepreneurial and corporate in order to survive the challenges that they're facing during the pandemic? Is there is there a greater openness now towards uh, models from the private sector, or is there is there still more reluctance um, and a reliance on people's sense of ethos and mission um, to lure them into into charities? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you're right. I do ha do have a, a corporate background um, in the earlier part of of my career. I, you know, I think charities and social purpose organisations are a distinct being. Um, I don't think they should try and be more like any uh, any any other type of organisation. Um, you know, they are a distinct being that that are doing fantastic uh, work. If by your question you mean whether they should become more focused where they are able to and they have the time and resource capacity to be more focused on perhaps uh, management practices that have been evidenced to work really well, um, be more focused on um, policies and procedures um, for the mid-size organisations and, and it is present in many already but I think there is scope for more to focus on best working practices that will make them as you know, as an efficient and as effective um, as possible, as Rachel says, to, to really focus on that, that social purpose of their organization. Um, I don't want to get into the salaries, salary debate, um, but you know, it's, you know, we, we are all passionate about the sector that, that we are working uh, with and within. And, um, and I think that's a real driver, but I do think it's important to, to balance that you know, an expression that's used quite often, the, the head and the heart, but in terms of, of the decision making and in the thinking, um, I appreciate with the, the really small organisations, it often just isn't doable um, or viable to have a, a plethora of, of policies and procedures and, and uh, you know, to, to look at best management practice. Equally, we've seen some fantastic examples in very small, agile startup 
activist type um, social purpose organizations, not necessarily charity, but absolutely driven by their social purpose, um, who are being, a, you know, who are able to embed great practices, great innovative practices, um, which are then enabling them to deliver so much value from a, from a very, very small, small base. And I think coming full circle, that kind of brings us all the way back round to the sort of social media and the digital aspect that is driving parts of the sector um, and is enabling some of them to, to do, you know, to create a lot more value than perhaps they could do without that access to, to digital and technology. So I guess the, the trick it will be to give, you know, widen that, that access for everybody um, in terms of both those working within organizations who are trying to deliver services, but equally, you know, there are many service users who also don't have access to the technology to be able to, um, you know, fully benefit or benefit at all in some cases from services that are typically being moved online. And I, and I do have a little bit of a fear in terms of, you know, what perhaps was pre-COVID when resources were still tight, but a little bit more plentiful than now could have been um, delivered on a face-to-face, one-to-one basis, there may be a shift to one-to-many over, over digital, um, you know, either through website provision or through live, live delivery, such as we're doing today. Um, and that may make it, uh, will make it, I think, much more difficult for some, some um, portions of the population and those needing the services to, to get that access. I just got a, got a question through. Um from an anonymous attendee in Zoom, Alex, which says, I know Alex touched on this briefly, but how can charities create and maintain meaningful collaborations with other charities and businesses in the current climate, especially those charities whose core functions are inhibited by coronavirus restrictions? Gosh, um, well, you know, a really good question. I'm, I'm thinking, um, you know, initial reactions to that is having absolute clarity, getting the best clarity that you can around what you are trying to achieve, what your USP is, you know, your, your unique um, position, perhaps within a wider system that you're working with. Many of the, the issues that all the charities are trying to address, you know, are a small part of a much bigger, bigger whole, um, often intrinsically linked. And then I think it's communicating, trying to find a way of, of communicating with, with real clarity to those different organisations, the different different sectors um, in trying to trying to build bridges and to see whether others are able either to work alongside you or to provide funding or typically resource. I mean, there are a number of platforms, you know, the NCVO, the Small Charities Coalition, Charity Finance Group, and, and a lot of professional bodies out there who on occasion, I'm sure they're, they're kind of inundated at the moment, but are typically there to help create those bridges. And I think there are a lot of, we've been working with a number of the large corporates who have been, who have really stepped up um, to support their charity partners through COVID um, in terms of, of trying to, to shore up their leadership and their organizational structures to make them as robust as possible. And many of those are the very small organizations on the, on the, um, on the, the corporates, you know, real sort of site plan uh, in the area where they're situated. I think there is there is certainly scope um, for small and medium enterprises, businesses to, um, you know, to be reached out to, but also to do the reaching out to the charities to see if perhaps there is more support they can give, give there. Um, and, and I think if you look within your your regional or your your county 
um, perhaps Community Voluntary Service, CVS, the infrastructure type organization. There's some really good initiatives going on there. I know I'm speaking from Suffolk this morning and, and they um, set up a, a, a COVID communities collaboration with links through to the voluntary sector, to the, the umbrella uh, support uh, charities that support the frontline service uh, delivery organizations. It's got the CCG, the police, the, the local authority, the enterprises bringing everyone together to see how bridges can be built and collaborations can be can be formed or build, build on those existing ones to really support um, and deliver and address the need that's being presented. And Rita, has that been your experience as well, especially with smaller charities? How much corporate support is there now for the charity partners to, to survive the pandemic? And is this a model that going forward will become more established? I mean, it's, um, it's an interesting question because um, Anecdotally, we, we've seen a lot of larger organisations right at the outset of the pandemic approach us and say, what can we do to help small charities? And not one of those has delivered to date. Um, because I think part of the challenge for the larger corporates is how do they repurpose and explain why they're focusing on smaller charities when smaller charities aren't able to respond in a way as quickly as they would like. So part that's part of the challenge. But we've also ended up in a bizarre situation where one corporate, very well-known international company reached out to us and said, we'd like to provide um, services. We'd like to provide training on um, trusteeship and, what's the, and financial management to help trustees at the moment. Now, maybe it was my fault, but I'd naturally presume that that training would have been for our small charity members. No, what it's actually ended up in is me uh, sort of sitting alongside the trustees that volunteer for their organisation, their, uh, their corporate employee uh, responsibility, and me supporting their training sessions. Um, and I think now they're at the stage where they're feeling rather guilty about that whole experience. And I think that speaks to a general tension because we've seen in the civil society strategy a kind of a push for charities to and businesses to work together. But actually, apart from some very specialist um, and very global infrastructure bodies, there's actually not that expertise at the micro local level. So, you know, accidents in uh, relationships between businesses and charities happen by accident rather than by planning. It's when they accidentally come across one another in a discussion rather than deliberately planned. And I think that's a huge challenge for small charities in particular. And uh, just a reminder to the audience, you can also submit your questions by using the Q&A function on Zoom or by tweeting at Cumberland Lodge or commenting on our live stream on Facebook. If you prefer to remain anonymous, please direct message us on Facebook or Twitter during the webinar. And to those watching via Zoom, we are now going to do a quick poll to hear some of your thoughts and some of your experiences. And uh, the question has just popped up. Have you supported... Uh, have you supported a charity more than you had previously in the past three months? So you still got about um, 15 seconds left. So have you supported charity through volunteering otherwise more than you had previously in the past three months? Um, getting some of the results in already. Here we are. 6% say yes, 4%, 40% uh, say no. 
Okay, so people have, is that, is that your experience as well? Um, I don't know who, who would like to respond to that, uh, that, that there has been more support for charities from volunteering otherwise over the past three months because people have been furloughed, because people were at home, because people realize, as you mentioned, the need uh, that it that is uh, growing in these times as well. Mm. Anyone would like to answer Rachel and then Rita and then Alex? <laughs> So I would have voted yes, <laughs> um, and, and the examples I would share, not just the 750,000 people, citizens that stepped up to support NHS, but um, I know, speaking to colleagues at British Red Cross, that they've been inundated with new volunteers wanting to help, um, and speaking to friends at Crisis, uh, another organisation I take a lot of inspiration from in terms of their leadership and, and culture and response to this um, to, this crisis, to this crisis, to the pandemic and, and the work they've done for um, changing legislation and uh, the experience of homeless people. Um, so uh, I think, I, I think it's, it gives us space to know that we're living in a society where people want to step up and help and are looking for opportunities to do that. I think there's probably more we can do around how those systems then work, because I also know of a lot of people that have stepped up to help within that 750,000 group and then haven't been called on or not quite, I, I know of um, locally based organizations that are struggling to kind of access that kind of um, platoon, that, that army of volunteers. Um, so it, I'm not sure the process has, has felt that easy to access either as an organization or as an individual. Um, and I think it's wonderful in the sense that, you know, our, our roots, the history of the charity sector is so connected to um, community action and volunteering. Um, and uh, we could have more <laughs> volunteers across the charity sector, I think, in every organisation. Um, and they're often not there. And I appreciate the, what, how, what it looks like in terms of good support for volunteers and the energy that, that that takes and how important it is to get it right. But it feels a really important part of our DNA. Um, and I take hope from seeing a resurgence uh, right now. And I hope it stays. I think that's an example of something coming through the cracks that I hope will stay. <laughs> Rita, sorry. Yeah, Rita, and also if you could perhaps comment on the extent to which there has been a shift in the demographic of people supporting charities, because some people who are in the vulnerable group might be less inclined to do that, but maybe younger people have stepped up a bit more. Just speculation, is there something you can say to that as well? Not sure if Rita's lost her Oh, is yeah. Rita still with us? Maybe Alex, if you go first, we're trying to re-establish our connection with Rita. Yeah, um, sorry, I, I, I didn't catch the first bit of your question, but in terms of, of the demographic, I, I think that, that, is, that is proving a real challenge right now. Um, and I think there was a piece in the sector press just, just yesterday in terms of obviously charity shops being allowed to begin to open, um, you know, from I think it was the 15th, 15th of June and going, going forward. Um, but obviously, you know, a, a lot of the volunteering base um, that they typically draw upon are perhaps in the older demographic or perhaps those with who now have um, childcare responsibilities and can no longer give that time. So they've launched an initiative through the Charity Retail Association together with an app to try and to really pull in those younger uh, volunteers who, who um, you know, perhaps um, who have already been very engaged with volunteering over the last 12 weeks and now would like to move into 
those those types of opportunities. Um, so I think there is potential for a shift. Um, you know, absolutely agree in terms of what Rachel was saying. Her, her several comments really resonated in terms of the volunteering and those 750 and what we're hearing anecdotally about perhaps some were left a little bit disappointed in terms of, of they weren't able to contribute their time and energy to the extent that perhaps they thought they would when they first signed up. But I think there is a real opportunity to grab that uh, that that high uh, level of energy and engagement with volunteering and and really really hold it um, in a way that perhaps we hear wasn't wasn't done post the 2012 Olympics where the volunteers played such a fantastic role. Um, but in fact, then there was a, there was quite a significant shift research um, shows and downward shift in terms of levels of engagement with volunteering. Um, so, you know, I think there is hope there and I think we shouldn't lose sight, you know, those 750,000, that was a national effort, but I think equally uh, there's a real opportunity to engage with volunteers at, at a much more local and community level um, where, um, you know, perhaps the, um, they, they will feel closer to the cause and it'll be perhaps a little less clunky in terms of the allocation and, and the, the management. Mm. And maybe moving on from volunteers, I noticed we've, we've lost Rita, who early on talked about the digital connectedness being the new divide in the charity sector. So hopefully she'll rejoin us later. Uh, but we had we had a question um, moving away from volunteers to charity governance. And this is an anonymous question. Do you think charity governance is fit for purpose? And how can we encourage more diversity on trustee boards? Um, maybe, Rachel, if you'd like to go first. Um. So I think um, leadership across the sector, and I include governance within that, uh, needs to diversify, um, picking up on the point I made earlier. And we know um, that uh, charity boards, uh, trustees and chairs, again, um, are too white um, and too often middle class. You know, class is a conversation we need to bring into a diversity conversation. <laughs> it's, it's something that in, in the UK we don't talk about enough, probably. Um, we've had experiences of uh, trying to change the nature of grant making in the UK by finding, placing and developing people from a working class background into grant making roles with the intention of those organisations, their, their people, over a period of 10 years, becoming more representative and more understanding of the communities they're making grants into. So um, class, I think, is, is an important part of the conversation. I think in terms of how do we diversify boards, I mean, the, the, lots of things need to happen. Um, I think that, um, uh, and, and there are a lot of good organisations out there that can speak on this topic much better than me. Um, what we're trying to do through our work is through our 2027 programme and through Charity Works is encourage people to understand they can lead at board level, um, regardless of how many years experience they have, they can do it from a young age and they can bring a very powerful life experience and lived experience into boards that can inject a, um, fresh perspectives and a diversity of perspectives, which means the quality of the conversations that leaders are having in boards, the way they are interpreting their context, their ability to have an kind of anticipatory muscle and foresight, you know, the quality of decision-making and leadership just elevates through diversity. And we know that, we know there's a very, very clear 
businesses for doing that. So we just need lots of mechanisms, practical mechanisms for getting people onto boards who bring different perspectives. And you can do that by being a trustee, by observing a board, um, by working in an organization and doing an inquiry into how governance could be stronger in that organization. You can do it from different angles within the system. Um, uh, yeah, that's what I would share. If I, if I can add on to that, you know, I absolutely agree in terms of the diversity. Um, and, and when you have got those people engaged with your, with your trustee board, you know, it, I think it has to be recognised the level of, of time investment and energy investment that then the board collectively needs to, to, um, to give to really ensure that, that uh, those diverse, that richness of experiences that are being brought can fully participate in the discussions, the conversations and the decision making. Um, and that they, it is fully inclusive. So I think, you know, I think it's we, one needs to go beyond just the diversity um, and, and bringing on the wider body of, of people to the boards, but really thinking through then how can, how can uh, the, the whole uh, board leadership process uh, work so that everybody can be as fully engaged and you can reap the full value from, from those lived experiences. And, um, we see quite quite a bit of that and, and we hear we do a huge number of governance reviews and we and part of that is interviewing individual trustees and we see some organizations that have taken so much time and effort to think through it might be um, younger board members you know how, how do the board papers look and feel what are the chat channels for delivery what are the timing of the board meetings to enable these people to contribute equally you know if you need to look outside your immediate geography trustees expenses not everybody can afford to to um, travel um, or you know that that's a step step um, that that and they can't willingly willingly take for whatever whatever um, reasons um, and again you know gen genuine accessibility issues across a whole plethora of um, service areas where you really want those, your service uh, users and beneficiary needs to be heard, not represented, but heard on, a, on an equal footing through your, your um, discussions, but how do you enable that? And often that means a real shift in the behaviors and the cultures of what, what is a typical uh, whiter, maler, older um, board trustee, trustee structure. If I, if I may just say on the, I think your part of the first question was whether trusteeship and governance was fit for, for purpose, uh, Jan. And I think it's really interesting because we see some, you know, I, I do have a ray of hope on this. We see some real, really exemplar performance. Equally, we see many, many who, um, you know, have some deficiencies and want support in terms of building on what they're already doing really well so that they can do it even better. But equally, what is the best practice and what can they try to address the deficiencies? And then I guess the negative is we still are seeing too many um, who just simply don't recognize the time um, investment that is, that is needed to make the, the board and uh, potentially some leadership teams um, you know, to operate to the best, in the best possible form to deliver that maximum value for whatever cause um, their, their charity is set up, set up to address. So it, it is quite mixed, but I think things like the Charity Governance Code um, here um, in England and Wales, um, and um, obviously other, other territories have got their own. I think the adverse media 
reaction, uh, you know, reaction quite rightly in, in many cases is encouraging trustees uh, who are typically quite risk averse to focus on how they can avoid, avoid being amongst those headlines. And I think there's a, just a general demand and as rightly should be from funders and the general public to, to know that the organization to whom they're giving the money on trust to deliver for a social purpose are really trying to, to, to lead in the widest, you know, I'm including management and board in that lead in the best possible way. Just building on that, Alex, if it's okay, Jan, I would just add, add two thoughts. Um, one is I think being a, a trustee of a charity is a really, really important job, yeah. a really important job. And I wonder if we give it enough status and recognition and support. Um, and secondly, um, I would just be really interested in if we were applying a radical approach to the design of governance fit for 21st century um, work, what would that look like? And I don't know the answer to that question, but I'd be really interested in being in the conversation and, and hearing a real kind of, as you say, plethora of perspectives and, and ideas, because I think it really, really matters. It's such an important part of our social fabric and architecture. Uh, that if that part of the system isn't working as well as it could, just a small change, a pivot can make a big difference. And I think there are many great examples and there are also many examples of where governance is fundamentally disconnected from the reality of the communities uh, the organisation is seeking to serve. Mm. And I think that makes a really smooth transition to, to another question we've got um, from Sinead, who says, as you mentioned, funding the charity sector is going to be challenging in the immediate post-COVID UK. Are there particular areas of the sector that you think should be prioritised by government funding? Oh. <laughs> um, maybe, Alex, if you want to go first. Well, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to really stick my neck out and answer uh, that one in terms of, of particular areas to prioritise. But I do think um, it's been really interested to see the amount of money that is poured into, for example, NHS. Um, to at the moment anecdotally we're hearing to to the detriment of perhaps other types of organizations perhaps medical research perhaps um, you know just keeping it in the health environment how one will get that shift uh, across the individual sectors right over the the short term I guess short to medium term in terms of addressing the real needs of now absolutely you know agreeing that there are tremendous needs and particularly in the health health arena right now but then with the longer longer term needs and I think health is quite a nice example in terms of those medical research organizations and um, the, the sort of NHS donations that, that have really really soared and, and rightly so right now so I think that that's quite interesting but in terms of um, actually prioritizing a particular sector, um, I think particularly in terms of voluntary income, personal donations, everybody tends to go with, with a, a really heart, heartfelt cause that they have a, a particularly close association with. And I, and I think the, the richness of the charity sector here in the UK and the amount that it contributes um, it, it is created by the diversity of the different different types of organizations or different types of causes that are being addressed by the organizations, perhaps not by the so many number of organizations addressing similar causes, but in terms of, of that diversity of cause that is having its needs met from the charity sector. 
Rachel, do you think there are any particular sectors, apart from Corio, of course, that, that should be prioritised by government no. funding? No, we, we, we don't want that. Um, yeah, I've got a few thoughts on this, actually. Um, at, but like Alex, I'm not going to say, you know, the, these, these organisations, but I can explain my reaction to the question. My first reaction is it's not enough money. Um, so 750 million was welcomed but the estimate of what the charity sector needed to just get through the first three months of the pandemic was anything between 4 billion and 10 billion. So it's not enough. Um, secondly, there needs to be a longer term strategy. So it's not just about enabling organizations to survive, but to transition. And um, the, I think the approach to where the funding goes should be into the most vulnerable communities and individual, so the organizations focused on the most vulnerable because the pandemic has been so revealing of the deep-seated systemic inequality that is in this country. Any funding needs to go towards solutions because the pandemic has also revealed that many of the problems, social problems that have challenged us, um, homelessness, um, poverty, they are political choices and they can be solved. So I would like to see the funding go towards organizations that are truly mission driven, that give power or place power in the hands of people who are experiencing those issues. And in the spaces where poverty is the deepest, where inequality is the deepest, um, we, we can within that also recognize that um, uh, people um, are experiencing this crisis in very, very different ways. So for my black colleagues and um, for our black trainees um, and for organizations working with BAME communities, there is a huge need to acknowledge um, how they are experiencing that crisis and for there to be uh, a, a response that enables those organizations to not just survive, but build renewal and recovery capacity. Um, and I would also uh, make a call out for um, uh, young people because they're gonna be living with this crisis uh, for the longest and they are experiencing it right now in a, in a way that has, and I'm thinking about the most vulnerable young people. Um, uh, so I, 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 would, I, would, I, would, um, I would acknowledge that deep uh, crisis in, the, in those spaces. Um, yeah, I think, uh, and maybe my final thought would be, um, we need to move beyond uh, just we need to be on need to move beyond the the kind of some of the funding models that we have right now because they're just not fit for the purpose of uh, the kind of era that we're moving into so yes we need government to intervene right now we need to, them to intervene big but what comes next and what funding models do we want for our 21st century lives and communities that will enable uh, the quality of community life and the compassion and the care uh, that we want and in, in the places where we're, we're present. So I think there's a, a big opportunity again through the cracks to think about more radical approaches to funding people working in the margins and on, on the edges of this space. And there's some amazing people out there doing great work on that. Um, I, would, I, would, I would do a shout out to uh, the work Local Trust have just commissioned from the Long Crisis Network um, and friends Alex Evans and David Stevens who've just published four scenarios looking at what future might be ahead of us um, and they're all challenging um, and in each of those if any of them come about there's a huge role to be played by civil society um, 
just, yes, and just building on that on that i think i think you know i would be also focusing on on charities who really know the role that they have to play in in their wider community and that wider system of 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 change um, I just, you know, personally, but it hurts me so much when I see um, in local territories or local geographies, organizations are competing against each other for funding. And this funding is, for, you know, it's, it's already tightened and it's going to remain like that. I think it's so important for organizations to really have a have a deep, long look at what they were originally created for that and really to define that social purpose and see how that fits with others working in a similar space so that they really can work much more collaboratively together and um, stop this competition that we do unfortunately see quite a bit in terms of of um, asking you know competing competing for funds to the detriment of of one or other organization who loses out Thank you. And I think that's a very, very positive note to close on as well. Um, unfortunately, we lost a third of our speakers halfway through the webinar, but I think both of you did an absolutely brilliant job. And I, I especially appreciated that you focus on so many of the positives that the situation that is very dire and difficult can nonetheless bring the opportunities that lie in developing and in aspiring to new models. And hopefully some people uh, who will be able to take decisions on this have been watching the webinar or will watch it as a recording on our website. So um, just want to say thank you to everybody who joined us today online and you can find out more about the work we do at Cumberland Lodge on our website at cumberlandlodge.ac.uk. We will be back again on Wednesday the 24th of June in two weeks time at 11am to discuss the future of the high street and the purpose of urban centres in the UK. If you would like to get alerts about forthcoming webinars you can sign up on the Keep in Touch page on our website or simply email us at inquiries at cumberlandlodge.ac.uk. Um, thank you once more to our brilliant speakers, Rachel, Alex, and I will send a thank you also to Rita. Um, stay safe and uh, goodbye. Thank you, Ian. Thank, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.